of the series who needs god and so again the idea for for those of you who've been been tracking with it just a bit of review uh people who are part of churches and people who people who grow up in church often they silently question the easter story they question the death and resurrection of jesus they question the existence of god when they run into times like some of uh, some of us are running into in in our church the whole thing can come crumbling to pieces and sometimes that silently happens in people's lives and nobody knows and you know sometimes people don't even want to ask some of those hard questions because they're afraid that they'll be looked at as if they have no faith or as if they're you know not a christian or as you know they'll be ostracized and that kind of thing and so i've seen just far 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 too much of that and so that's kind of the the the, the goal of the series is to get you to a place where you build a conviction about the thing that really matters the death and resurrection of Jesus. You have that, and you have a conviction about that. That is the foundation of everything. So uh, in part one, we talked about atheism 2.0, and we're going to look at a, a man who became not an atheist, but an agnostic tonight in a few minutes. And we looked at the consequences, the implications uh, of atheism. And these are, these are very helpful, actually, from some very, very popular writers like Richard Dawkins and the late... Uh, Christopher Hitchens and so on and these people have really hit the nail on the head in terms of this is what atheism implies you know it implies there's no free will it implies that there's no no such thing as you know the soul or you in, in the sense of you it's all that is an illusion you know free will is an illusion you are an illusion it's just time space matter biology chemistry physics and that's all it is, you know. And uh, so they, 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 we, we talked about that in, in part one. Uh, in part two, we talked about the gods of the New Testament. You know, these false gods that we think are real, uh, like um, on-demand God. Push a little button, you can get what you want from God. Life in a bubble God, nothing bad ever happens to godly people. Um, boyfriend God, girlfriend God, I always feel God's presence, yes, I should feel Him all the time. You know, guilt God, I should always feel guilty. If I feel guilty, that means I'm godly. Uh, don't think, don't ask, never ask a question, never think, and never, never, never doubt God. And finally, the anti-science God. Science and God are totally incompatible. These are all false views of God. And people are walking away from the gods of the New Testament in droves. Now we know in the United States, at least, uh, the amount of people who would call themselves nuns, not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. In other words, no more religious affiliation. I'm not Protestant, I'm not Catholic, I'm not Christian, I'm not Jewish, I'm not Buddhist, I'm not Hindu, I'm not Islam, I'm none. Show me the box that says none, and that's where I am. That amount is now the same, a little bit higher actually, than the evangelicals and the Catholics in the United States. So it's, it's gone up 260% uh, since the mid-90s. Exploded. It is the only religious view that is exploding in the United States. Everything else is either flatlined or in decline. And probably in Canada it's the same thing, and probably in Quebec it's even worse. Uh, so the, the nuns are walking away sometimes from the gods of the New Testament. 
and then we did a, a long message about the Bible and got into some of the technicalities of why you, you have a good reason to trust uh, the Bible and the Easter story and charts and pictures and all that stuff. Uh, you can look at that uh, online. You know, it's not as simple as the Bible says so. Uh, are you sure? Are you sure? Do you know? Uh, is your reason for believing in Christianity because you have faith? That's a that's a very, very weak reason because you have faith. It's what you, what you call a circular argument, right? Why do I believe in Christianity? Because I have faith. That's like saying, why do I believe? Because I believe. And you talk to a person who's an unbeliever and they're going to say, well, I don't I don't have your faith. I'm sorry, I can't have your faith. I like to have reasons. And the reason is Jesus died. Jesus rose from the dead. That's the foundation of the faith that we have. And then last week, we looked at the God that Jesus believed in. If the gods of the New Testament aren't real, well, then what God is real? Well, the God that Jesus believed in was the same God in the Old Testament, same God in the New Testament. And Jesus talked about these three terms, Father, Spirit, and Love. And we went over that uh, last week. So tonight, we're going to uh, talk about injustice and cracking the injustice code. So the biggest problem, and we looked at this in a series that we did called Hope in the Dark, if you remember that a few months ago, the biggest problem that, that Christians have, the biggest problem that non-Christians have with faith and with God and with belief and with the Bible and all of that, when it comes down to it, the number one challenge, the number one problem, it is a very difficult problem to solve, it's kind of like a code that you have to crack, is, well, if God is good, and if God is able, then why doesn't God do such and such? If God is good, he would stop such and such injustice from happening. If God is able, if he's powerful enough, well, he would stop such and such. Why doesn't he do that? Why doesn't he do those things if he is good and he is all-powerful? then why does he not? And you say, well, that doesn't really have anything to do with Good Friday. You'll find out at the end of this message it has a whole lot to do with Good Friday. If God is good, if God is able, why doesn't he? I was reading today uh, a story of a church in, I forget which African nation, a Pentecostal church, and uh, disaster over there. I think there's 16 people who perished, who lost their lives there. Just yesterday, I think, and it, or maybe it was today, this morning, in observance of Good Friday. And in that service, all these people lost their lives. In a church, in a Pentecostal church, no less. If God is good, if God is able, why didn't God stop it from happening? Now, just a few things about this, okay? Because this is a really, really hot button thing, really, really emotional uh, and very difficult problem to solve. But first and foremost, okay, learn this about this problem. Never use somebody else's pain and somebody else's suffering to justify your case against God. So people who do that, they say, well, you know, this happened to such and such a person. And this happened to those people over there. And this happened to my relative over here. And this happened to these people over there. And therefore, I have an issue with the existence of God. Never, never do that. Do you know why? Because sometimes those people over there 
they grow closer to God through that pain and through that suffering. And it is highly disrespectful for us, even though we don't intend it, it is highly disrespectful for us to look at their thing and say there is no God as a result. Because oftentimes those people over there, they are drawn to God, closer to God through suffering and through pain and through injustice. And typically what happens is those of us in the Western world, those of us in, in first world countries, we typically have the big beef and the big case against God because of injustice. If God is able, why doesn't he? If God is love, why doesn't he? We typically have that. People in third world countries don't think of it exactly the same way as we do. They often in their suffering and in their pain and in their poverty are closer to God than we are. And there, we would look at them and say, how, how can you believe in God when your children are perishing because of a lack of food? How can you believe in God? How can you follow God? That's ridiculous. And that is so, that can be so disrespectful and so insulting to those people because they're drawn to God sometimes even through and because of, they would say, that suffering. So be careful. You want to make a case against God because of your own issue. Good, you have a right to do that. But be careful doing that with somebody else's issue because it can be highly, highly disrespectful to them in their pain and in their suffering. Uh, an example of this, I don't know if you've ever heard of Charles Templeton. Any of you ever heard that name before? Charles Templeton? Yeah, you're, you're revealing your age a little bit there. So, so Charles Templeton was, was a good friend of the late Billy Graham. Both of these men have passed away. Of course, we know a lot more about the Billy Graham than we do about Charles Templeton because Charles Templeton became an agnostic. And Charles Templeton uh, did a lot of ministry in Canada, actually, and uh, is not unfamiliar with, with Quebec. Uh, very, very brilliant guy, and there were some people who said that Templeton would actually eclipse Billy Graham as the greatest evangelist of all time. Uh, he planted a church in, in Toronto that exploded uh, in growth. This is many, many years ago. It's still around today. It's you know changed denominations and all of that over time, uh, but he was a scintillating communicator and a contemporary of Billy Graham. And there came a point, actually, uh, where Billy Graham was quite challenged by Charles Templeton and some of the questions and some of the doubts that Templeton began to have about his faith. And uh, you can read this in um, uh, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Faith, and you can read uh, how Billy Graham really had to come to a place where he had to put his foot down and, and kind of draw a line in the sand and, and disagree with some of the things that, that Charles Templeton was saying to him. It was kind of a defining moment in his life. By the way, um, we do have, and we'll give these away tonight and, and on Easter Sunday, two little booklets, fantastic little booklets by Lee Strobel. Uh, whose movie we played, The Case for Christ. Uh, this is the Case for Christ answer booklet, and we're also giving away The Case for Easter. Really cool little tools for you. Uh, even use them when you're sharing your faith with your friends. Strobel is a terrific writer, and um, he, he puts it in a way that the modern person can read and not be bored out of their brains, okay? So in that, in that book, The Case for Faith, he, he actually had a, a, a chance, Lee Strobel, to interview Charles Templeton uh, late in his life and 
Templeton is most famous for a book that he wrote called Farewell to God, uh, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And he tells the story uh, in the interview with Lee Strobel, which is probably makes the whole book worth it. Again, you can find this book. It's called The Case for Faith. You can find it anywhere. And he tells the story um, of how he came to a place after all of these different questions and all of these different doubts that he had. He came to a place where he saw a picture in Life magazine of a woman, I don't, I don't remember which nation it was, uh, in Africa, and her, her baby had just perished due to a drought. And uh, she was holding her baby and, and looking up to the sky. And he said at that point, it was at that point where he said, God cannot exist. He cannot. Because all he had to do was send rain and that baby would have lived. That's all he had to do. Who controls the rain? It's God. He didn't send rain. And therefore, there's just no way I can continue to believe that such a God exists. And he went down the road of agnosticism as, you know, to say, well, a person cannot know that, cannot know that God can exist. And he, he had a popular radio show, is a great communicator. And again, Lee Strobel had the privilege of interviewing him late in his life. If you read the interview, you will see that it took a different turn. Uh, and anyway, you have to read it in his book, uh, The Case for Faith. But this is a man who used somebody else's pain and somebody else's suffering as kind of the nail in the coffin to say farewell to God. You say, well, he's right, he's right. Well, how does he know that maybe that woman might have actually felt closer to God even through that moment of suffering and through that pain? He does not know that, you see. And sometimes when we take these things and we use them with our with, in a beef against God, we can be just, we can be really off the mark. But that's, that's a great example of that. And you should really uh, read that book uh, another observation, yeah, pain and suffering often draw people toward God and not away. Um, I think of, um, uh, what is her name? She's uh, a paraplegic, um, help, help me, Janet. Um, Johnny Erickson Tata. Yeah, Johnny Erickson Tata, um, who, who paraplegic most of her life, who uh, became that way through a diving accident and I think going through her second battle with cancer now at this moment. And, um, and she will say that through that suffering and through that ordeal, she's gotten closer to God, not farther away from God, but closer to God and does not want to be healed because her suffering in her wheelchair has brought her closer to God than she ever would have been before. You say, well, how's that? That's crazy. But that's the testimony of many, many, many people, especially people who don't have all of the privileges and luxuries that we have over here uh, in first world countries. All right. Uh, another thing, what we what we tend to do, is, again, a little bit like like uh, Charles Templeton, um, we say, well, God doesn't exist. Therefore, he cannot exist because of these things. If he's able, he would. If he's love, he should. If he's powerful, he would. He's not, and therefore he ain't. <laughs> therefore, he doesn't exist. Okay, this this is a really, really strange argument against the existence of God. Really strange. Do you know why? 
Because the Judeo-Christian argument for the existence of God has nothing to do with pain and suffering. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Nobody. I can't, I've never read anybody, I've never heard anybody who uses pain and suffering as proof of the existence of God. In other words, you know, someone saying, well, you know, we seem to notice that good things only happen to people who worship you know, Jehovah or Jesus. <laughs> good things seem to happen only to those people and people who don't worship that God, bad things happen to them. And therefore, that God must exist. Aha! Have you ever heard anyone make up such a silly argument like that? So why do we say that God doesn't exist when we observe, and rightly so, that bad things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, doesn't matter what God they serve, bad things happen all the time. And good things happen all the time. Things happen. Nobody ever uses this as, a, as proof of existence of the Judeo-Christian God. Nobody ever used that. So why do we use it as proof of his non-existence? I don't know. But let me tell you, let me introduce you to a concept here that is, in my view, I'm a little bit shocked, actually, how prevalent it is here in this province and in Quebec, in the United States, in many, many nations around the world. And what it does um, is it masquerades as Christianity. And this is a concept, this is a religious view of animism. The idea of looking at good things and bad things and trying to figure out what God that comes from, that is an animistic worldview. That is a worldview that is based in animism. You say, what's animism? I found a terrific definition of this uh, from a Baptist pastor and missionary, and he says it this way. And he talks about a movement that's very, very prevalent around the world, in particular in the United States. And this, this is sometimes called the work faith movement or the prosperity gospel movement. And this is the idea that if you pray the right way, if you quote the right scripture, if you have the right faith, if you have the right formulas, kind of like, kind of like on-demand God and life in a bubble God. If you have all of that right recipe, if you have all that right mojo, you can get what you want from God all the time. Ha ha. And so what he says is he says the PG movement or the prosperity gospel movement is nothing more than humans seeking to discover the forces that are influencing them and manipulate their power. This is animism at its core with a few Bible verses and Jesus attached. So you go in many different countries around the world. And I've been to a couple of them. I saw this in Haiti. I saw this in some places in Cuba. And what happens is the, the people are very religious. The people are very, very spiritual. You know, voodoo is they're very, very religious. But what they believe is that everything is animated. Everything has a soul. Everything has a spirit. And those spirits have an impact, you see, on us as humans. Everything. So, so what you have to do is you have to find the right recipe. You have to find the right witch doctor. You have to find the right priest. And you bring them something. You bring them an article of clothing. You bring them some food. You bring them some money. You bring them something. And they seem to have the right mojo, the right power over that spirit world. 
And they can give you blessing, they can give you money, they can hurt people, they can curse people, and they operate that way and they control people that way based on fear because the whole idea is get the gods to do what you want and find the right people who can give you what you want and what you need and those are the people who are in contact with the spirit world. This idea, this idea of this on-demand God and this life in a bubble God, this is so, so prevalent here in this province and in this, in this country, in this continent, it is absolutely stunning. There are so many books on the market. There's so much preaching out there. There's so much ministry out there that will give you, I'll give you the recipe. You will find your healing. You will find your prosperity. You will find your, your future spouse. You, you will have that baby. You will this, this, this. All you have to do is do it this way. And this is how it will work. And people go to conference after conference after conference and spend all this money and run around to this pastor, run around to that evangelist and watch this television show over and over and over again. You know what happens? People get disillusioned and people get discouraged and people are filled with doubt and despair because they believe the whole thing. They, they, they put every ounce of energy that they could into the whole thing and absolutely nothing happens. And, you know, people will people will do this with God. They will do this with Jesus. They will do this with the Bible. It is nothing more than animism that has been baptized in a nice little Christian suit. It's the exact same thing. My friends, life in a bubble God does not exist. On-demand God does not exist. And bad things sometimes happen to godly people. And they sometimes happen to ungodly people. Jesus said the rain, it goes on the just and the... Unjust. Have you looked outside? Mm -hmm. Do you see Christians with the rain not falling on them? <laughs> it's a great example. Mm -hmm. We have to get to a place where we say, you know what, God? You're still sovereign no matter what happens. Mm -hmm. And here's what Christians do. Uh, just, just, to, just to give you, just to put it all on the table. By his stripes you are healed. From Isaiah 53. By his stripes you are healed. So you have a sickness in your life. You have an illness in your life. The Bible says by his stripes you are healed. So your problem is not that you haven't been healed. Your problem is you need to claim your healing. God has already healed you. Jesus died on the cross for your healing. So it's his will to heal you. This is, the, this is the language that is used. It is his will to heal you all the time. Because he's shown that to you on the cross. This is the language that is used. So you need to claim your healing. And if you are not healed, that is not God's problem. Guess whose problem it is? Yours. You're doing something wrong. Maybe there's sin in your life. Have you checked? Maybe there's sin in your 10th generation. Someone put a curse on your 10th generation ago. And you need to run around and start breaking curses. Maybe there's uh, something in your house. Maybe your loved one has sin in their life. Maybe you just don't have enough faith. Maybe it's the devil who's blocking it. But God has already healed you. He's shown that to you on the cross. By his stripes you are healed. There's not something wrong. 
There's something wrong with you if you have not been healed. Can I just tell you, okay, I'm, I'm a Pentecostal minister. I do believe in healing in the atonement. I do. But as an ultimate consequence of the atonement, you will never see that verse, not one single time, by his stripes you were healed. You will never see it quoted, not one single time in the New Testament, with reference to a physical healing, never. Not one single time. What you will see is a verse that's very close to it. He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. That verse is used in Matthew chapter 8 when Peter's mother-in-law is healed of a fever. She is bedridden, she's healed of a fever, and she gets up and she starts serving. And Matthew observes, he took up our infirmities. That is before the cross. The, the, the following verses, and by his stripes you are healed. The way that that passage is interpreted for us is done for us by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. And Peter says that you're healed of sin. Yes, you are. That is a guarantee of Calvary. Is that you are healed of your sin because Jesus paid it all. Because Jesus atoned for your sin. That is what we celebrate. That is what we honor. That is what we remember on Good Friday. Atonement made once and for all. Paid in full, Jesus said. But to say that this thing has to be used as a blanket promise. For every single person in every single situation and everybody's going to get healed all the time. What we're doing is we're pushing the scripture just like an animist would. We're pushing God into this little thing and we say, God, we can get what we want from you. All we have to do is, is play around with this text, you see. And that's taking liberties that we do not have. Ultimately... You will see healing from that thing. Ultimately, at the end of time, you will see that. That is the ultimate consequence of the atonement. But it is not, it is not, it is not to be used as some, some animistic thing. And that is what we're doing with this text today. And I, I just need to say it because I've heard so much of it, especially over the last year and a half. As people have walked through suffering and have heard all kinds of things said to them. Friends, we have to grow up in our faith and in our understanding of the power and the sovereignty of God. Does God heal today? Absolutely, He does. You will see a, a perfect example of that tomorrow in that movie. Does He heal all the time at your beck and call? No. No. I wish He did. I wish He did. But He does not. And I have visited enough hospitals and done enough funerals and stood at enough gravesites to tell you that he does not all the time. Ah, but he will. And you'll see that in a few moments. Okay, so when we, when we talk about injustice, injustice, what we can do is rather than question the existence of God based on injustice, we can indeed question God's character. We most certainly can. It is a valid case to say maybe there's something wrong with the character of God. Maybe he has a defect in his character or something. And Habakkuk does this. We saw that in our Hope in the Dark series. Habakkuk has, a, has great complaints. 
He doesn't question God's existence, but he certainly goes after God's character. He certainly has issues and complaints with God's character, and he's not shy to bring them out. But does he question God's existence? No. No, he does not. Uh, but we certainly can try and go after his character. Um, but here's the thing. When we talk about a God of love, which we, we did last week, and you know, you go up to your non-Christian friend and neighbor and you talk about the love of God, they'll say, yes, God is love. God is love, peace and love, you know? And maybe they're thinking of the 60s, I don't know. But you'll have no trouble with this idea that God is love. Where did we get that idea? Did we get God is love from observing nature? Well, not really. I mean, the basic argument that people use for God, the Judeo-Christian argument, again, it has nothing to do with whether or not a person experiences pain and suffering. The basic argument for the Christian God or the Judeo-Christian God is the following, okay? Uh, we, we have a cause argument. So we can go all the way back and we can say, well, there's got to be some kind of uncaused cause. Remember we talked about God is spirit. Jesus said that to the woman at the well, Matthew chapter or John chapter four. God is spirit. He's immaterial. So you play back the tape and you go all the way back. And before there was anything material, there was nothing. And then something happened. So the argument for the Judeo-Christian God is, well, what caused that? Where did that come from? And we say that's an uncaused cause. There has to be something that started it that had no cause. And that cause is God. Okay, that's the argument for causality. That's a standard argument for the, the, the existence of the Judeo-Christian God. And then there's an argument from design. So we look around at creation. We look around at the cosmos. We look around at everything. And we say, wow, that is so complex. That is, that is incredibly difficult complex it it appears to have a design to it it appears to have a um, an intelligence to it uh, and so we use an argument from design to say that God exists and there is also a moral argument we have a sense of right and wrong all of us have a sense of right and wrong even though it may differ from place to place we have a sense of hey you did something wrong to me well where did we get that from where did that come from? And so we say, well, that came from God. That, that's the standard argument for the existence of the God of the Bible. But really, when you observe nature, are you going to get the idea that God is love from observing nature? Have you ever watched nature? <laughs> Have you ever looked at some of those documentaries, you know, uh, ever seen an animal eat another one? <laughs> you ever seen that before? I remember when I took a trip to, to Africa and went, uh, went uh, had the privilege of going on a safari for one day. And you know what you want to see when you go on a safari? You want to see big cats. That's what you want to see, big ones. You don't want to see the ones that purr. You want to see the ones that roar, yes. And ideally what you want to see, if you're being honest, is you want to see a big cat hunt. Hopefully not you. <laughs> That's what you really want to see. Or you want to see some big cats hunt. Because when you see them hunt, you see nature. You see nature in all of its whatever it is. But you sit there with your mouth open as you watch what happens. And I did not see that. Okay, I did see some big cats, big ones. 
and this one big cat, uh, there was two big cats, male and female, and you know, they were, but anyway, this, this big cat, uh, the, the male, you know, he, 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 you ever been looked at by a regular cat before? <laughs> they just look at you, right? They just look at you and it's like you're, you know. But imagine if that cat is maybe 25, 30 feet from you with no barrier. You're in a little truck, but there's no barrier on the truck. And that cat is looking at you, but that cat weighs a whole lot more than that little cat that burps. And when that cat looks at you, that cat is looking through you. It feels like you, there's someone behind you that that cat is looking through. And that male lion, I saw the male lion in the night, and then I saw the male lion in the morning, the same one. And he just, look, he just looks at you like, you know something, you're not even worth it, you're too scrawny. You're just too boring, you're too scrawny. So I'll just look at you and intimidate you, but you're not worth me getting up and, and even frightening you because there's no meat on your bones. <laughs> and that's how they look at you. But when those things hunt, you see nature. And nature is not pretty. Nature is not love. Nature is survival. You know, it's, it's something killing something else. So this is what Stephen Hawking said very famously. Um, the, the, the brilliant Stephen Hawking, whose movie you can watch, The Theory of Everything, uh, Stephen Hawking with uh, Luke Eric's disease, a brilliant uh, theoretical physicist and cosmologist and everything else. This is what he said very famously, the statements all over the internet. In 1990, he said this. He said, the terror that stalks my mind is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution. And he, he's an evolutionist. He says, the terror that stalks my mind is that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution. Because of naturalistic selection, which we talked about in part one, and natural selection assumes natural rejection, right? If something's going to be selected, that means something else got rejected. You know what that means? It died. It got eaten. It, it died. It, it went the way of the big cat that, that devoured it, so to speak. It assumes natural rejection, which means we have arrived here because of our aggression. That's how we got here. And he says, that is the terror that stalks my mind. And if you read the quote, he says, the only hope that we have is if we separate and migrate to other planets. Because if we don't, we will annihilate ourselves. Stephen Hawking, who knows, maybe he's right. We will annihilate ourselves. Wow. That is the way of nature. That is the way of nature. You don't get this idea of God is love from nature. Where do you get the idea of God is love? You get it from revelation. That means that God reveals it to us through his word, ultimately through Jesus himself. This is where we get the concept of God is love. You don't just get it from observing nature. You may get a moral argument for the existence of God, but you don't really have a clue how moral God is or how loving God is, but just that morals may exist because of God. So the idea that he is love comes to us because he has revealed it to us, yes, through his word, but ultimately through his son, Jesus. And this is where we move to Good Friday and the cross. So on the cross of Good Friday, or traditionally known as Good Friday, 
Here you have, for those of us who have this, this beef uh, with God about injustice, here you have the greatest example uh, of injustice and the most ironic example of injustice that has ever happened in human history. Why would I say that? It is the greatest example of injustice because in Jesus, you have the perfect man. You have the perfect human. You have someone who never sinned ever, ever. Not even as a child, not as a teenager, not as an adolescent, not as an adult. He never, never, never sinned ever. He was completely perfect, morally perfect in his character in every single way imaginable. Completely holy and completely without sin in every single way imaginable. The perfect human being in that sense. How many of you have ever broken any of the Ten Commandments? You should all raise your hand. <laughs> Let me tell you, I've broken them all. Maybe not in, in action, but maybe in heart, maybe in mind, maybe in thought. I've broken them all. Can I just tell you, I, I, I know I sin less now that I'm a Christian, okay? And I'm a professional Christian, so I'm a pastor. So theory says, you know, pastors are supposed to be exemplary or something. I don't know whoever came up with that idea, but, well, there's some things in the Bible about that. But anyway, I, I know I sin less, but I sin all the time. I know I sin less, but I, I still sin. I still sin, and I still sin, I would say, every day. And I would say multiple times a day. I would say multiple, multiple times a day. Do I sin less than when I wasn't a Christian? Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree I sin, I sin less. But I'm very keenly aware of my sin. Very, very keenly aware of it. More so now than ever before. Can you imagine never sinning? Never, never in your life. How many of you kids have ever broken any of the Ten Commandments? You don't raise your hand? You should raise your hand. That's good or is it? You should raise your hand. All you kids should raise your hand because your, your parents know that you have transgressed. Okay, your parents certainly know that you have. Okay, so what does the Bible say? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every last person who ever lived except one, one, and that was Jesus himself, Jesus himself, well, he must have had a good life then, God must have really blessed him, he must have given him a nice house, and all kinds of money, and a nice car, and a big juicy retirement package, he must, I mean, he must have lived in a palace, I mean, if he was perfect, in every way, if he was the closest person to God who ever lived, then he must have, I mean, imagine, he must have been born in, like, I don't know, the Hilton something or other in Dubai somewhere. I mean, and he must have lived like an incredibly lavish, he must have had like golden toilet seats. 
They must have been golden for Jesus, right? Because he was a perfect human who never, never, never sinned. So God must have blessed him beyond description as an example to all of us. If we live godly and holy lives, God will protect us from everything. No. Is that what you read in the Gospels? No. No. Do you read anything close to that in the Gospels? No, no, no. In fact, what you read in the Gospels is from the cradle to the grave, Jesus experienced suffering. From the cradle to the grave, Jesus experienced poverty. He didn't even have a house. No house. No purple golden underwear. You know, do you know what I'm saying? Like you read the life of Jesus and you, excuse me? This is a, wow, this is a big shocker. If God blesses righteous people, he must have made a huge mistake in the most righteous person who ever lived. What a weird thing that is. What a strange picture of God in the flesh. Strange, really, really strange picture. And how does he die, this Jesus? How does he die? Does he die? Uh, does, is he pulled from the earth without... without uh, you know any problems like uh, like Elijah in the Old Testament? Is he is he caught up into a whirlwind or something? No. How does he die? Well, we know how he dies, but do we think about how he dies? So you have Jesus, the most righteous, most godly, most holy, most sinless person who ever lived, who is beaten to a pulp by the company of Roman guards, who is stripped of his clothes. Who is flogged. Do you know what a flogging was back then in the first century? You know what they did to these people? They had these, these, these whips with chips of bone in them. And they whipped these people with these things. Before they would crucify them sometimes. They would flog them like that. And they flogged Jesus. And they drove uh, uh, thorns into his scalp. And they, they, they beat him. And they hit him with a rod in the head. And they plucked his beard Isaiah says. And they, they made him carry this cross. And what did they do? They, they nailed him to that thing. Do you know they, they would strip their victims naked? You rarely see this in any Jesus movie. Very, very rarely. The only one that does it is the most horrendous Jesus movie I ever saw. Never, never see this movie. It's called The Last Temptation of Christ by Martin Scorsese, disaster, horrible movie. But that's the only movie that I've ever seen that shows Jesus crucified in shame with nothing on. Uh, it's an awful disaster movie though. Do not see it, please, because it's loaded with heresy, like left, right, and center. Old movie from the 1980s. They would embarrass these people, they would shame these people, and they would hang them up on these crosses publicly to die publicly to intimidate people into to, to never violate Roman law. That's what they would do to these people. And that is what happened to Jesus, the most perfect, most holy, most sinless, most godly person who ever lived. Now what we tend to do as Christians with this thing is we say, yeah, 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 and we put a little asterisk by it and say, but he's God. So maybe it didn't hurt or something, or maybe it's all part of, you know, it's all part of the salvation thing. So we kind of say, well, yeah, but he's God. So it's different. It's not the same as us going through suffering. Excuse me? The problem that we have today is the total reverse 
of the problem that they had in the first century. The problem that they had in the first century was to try and reconcile the idea that this carpenter from Nazareth was divine and that he was deity. This was a big, big struggle for people because they believed in monotheism, one God. And here you have Jesus claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. And you see this in the gospel record. You see people charging him of blasphemy and accusing him of blasphemy because he's making claims to be deity. This was the struggle that they had. You know what struggle we have? In the church today, we fail often to meditate on the humanity of Jesus. We can argue about the deity of Jesus. We can argue about the Trinity and all that stuff. We become, become masters at that. But we forget oftentimes about his humanity. And Jesus was fully, fully, fully human. Human. And you know, we talk about, about uh, death today. And it's a you know, very familiar subject with us in the life of this church over the last little while. Churches go through seasons like this because life is filled with these seasons, friends. I wish that, I wish that this would be the only time. It's not going to be the only time. This is part of life. Uh, and we think about death and sometimes we think about it does it hurt you know and, and we have a fear uh, of dying as a result and and I'm not saying that's a bad thing but we when we start thinking about death usually what happens is fear is is a dominant emotion let me tell you friends that when Jesus was facing the cross boy you have a lot of emotion you have a lot of things going on in Jesus the man what happens when he goes to the garden and prays? We're told, we're told in the Gospels that his, that, his, that his sweat was like drops of blood. That is a very, very strange thing. It's a very unusual medical condition. There's a term for it. It's very, very rare, but it can happen to people in very, very rare situations of extreme stress. It can happen. There's a few records of it in history with some people in history, some notable figures in history. It can happen technically. So if it, if it did happen that way, it would give you an idea of the amount of stress and the amount of anxiety that Jesus, the man, yes, also God, but Jesus, the man, was experiencing. And what does he say to the Father as he prays? Oh, let's go. It's all part of the plan. Let's go. I'm ready. Is that what he says? No. no, he says, he says, Father, take this cup from me. And he's referring to cup was, a, was an image there of wrath. You're going to pour out your wrath on me. If possible, take this cup from me. And then he gets to this place where he says, not my will, but yours be done. It's interesting that as he's praying that prayer, we have no record of any answer from the Father. Jesus prays. We don't see the Father say, okay, 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 I've got a different way. You hear nothing. What does Jesus say when he's up on that cross? What does he say as he addresses God using the term God or theos in, in the Greek in our, in our translation? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me you it seems like you have left me here to hang on this cross in this pain you know where we get the word excruciating from we get it from the word crucify that's where we get the word excruciating pain 
you're talking about a very, very painful way to die. And they would take these people, they would hang them on these crosses, and sometimes it would take days before they died. If you look at the timing and you time the, the whole thing in the Gospels, six hours. In six hours, Jesus was gone. That's very fast. Compared to, to other crucifixion things that we see and some things that have survived in Josephus and some writers, it would take days often. And it took only six hours. You know what that tells us? That tells us that that was, some, that was a very nasty thing that God allowed to happen to Jesus. The most righteous, most holy, most perfect character who ever lived. That is so unfair. That is so unjust. That is completely unjust and unfair. I mean, good things should have happened to him. And that is what happened to him. That is, the, that is a graphic example of injustice. That Jesus, the Son of God, the perfect human, would die in such a fashion. That is injustice. But it is also highly ironic. It is, a, it is a, almost a ridiculous kind of irony. Because the people who put him on that cross are the people who he died for. You and me, you know, two millennia later, with all of our complaints against God, because, well, if he's all powerful and he's all loving, how come he doesn't? He did in Jesus. He died for us to save us from our sin. And yet we're the ones who are crying out that he is unjust. And yet he is the one who enacted the ultimate act of justice on our behalf to die for our sins. Do you see the irony in that? It's like dripping with irony, this concept. This is the most ironic example of injustice that you can find in human history. Here's what we want. We want justice to happen now. We want to see them pay. We want to see the, those people who did those things to us. We want to see them pay and we want to see it with our eyes. We want to see it now. And if, if it will happen now, okay, then God's just. And God's able and God's powerful. You know, if we saw it every time, maybe we'd say, okay, I believe God exists. After all, so-and-so who did something bad to me, well, look, they got nice and, they got nice and sick. God, God exists. Uh -huh. God exists. Yet Charles Templeton passed away due to Alzheimer's. She said, oh, well, he deserved it. He became an agnostic. He wrote a book. Farewell to God. See, God got him back. Uh -huh. It's good when God gets everybody else back. But what happens when God gets us back? That's the problem. We, we want justice. We want it now. But we don't want to be judged. We want everybody else to be judged, but not us. Thank you very much. But when, when Jesus died on the cross, everyone was judged. The judgment upon us all came upon one man who was God at the same time. To pay the penalty for our sins once and for all. We want it now and or else. 
Well, when did God say that you're the one who's going to be satisfied with the timing of his justice? Like, why is it his job to satisfy you and me with the timing of his justice? It isn't. He's on his own time schedule. He doesn't operate by your time schedule and my time schedule and, you know, my concept of how he should do it and all that. He, he doesn't do that. But the problem of injustice is ultimately going to be solved because Jesus didn't come to only show God as a God of love without also showing God as a God of justice. And as we saw last week, you can't separate those two. You can't say God is love and that God is not just. If you have love, you have justice at the same time. Depends on which angle you look at it, right? You have to have justice if you have love. You have to have love if you have justice. And so this is going to happen, but it's not going to happen on your time schedule and on my time schedule. And this is the whole reason, this is the whole purpose of the coming of the Lord and the second coming, the return of Jesus. He will bring about justice, but he will bring it about in his time and in his way. And this is this is the whole hope of the New Testament. You can hardly read a page of the New Testament without without uh, an implication of the of the soon return of Christ. These people weren't were looking for justice in their own lifetime. They were looking for justice in another world. I mean, they were looking for Jesus to bring in something different. And that's ultimately when justice would come. They knew they weren't going to see it until that happened. And they thought that it was going to happen very, very soon. Um, it's 2,000 years later and it still hasn't happened. But that doesn't mean it never will. You see? And this is, this is, this is why we do what we do. This is why the church exists. The church exists to, to, to represent the gospel to the world. This is why we're here. Because we're here to tell people the salvation, you can be saved now. And ultimate justice and ultimate salvation is going to come when he brings it in. And so we, we look at life all differently because of that reality. When we take communion in a few moments, that's, that's what we're acknowledging. Not only the death of Jesus, but the death of Jesus until Jesus returns. You cannot, you cannot solve this problem without coming to face to face with the concept that Jesus must return one day if he does not then we have a valid claim to attack the character of god we have a valid claim your atheist friend your agnostic friend your nun friend has a valid claim if jesus never returns do you know how we know that jesus will return it's right back to the same thing it's the same question of, do you know how you can believe that Christianity is true? Because Jesus rose from the dead. My friends, if he rose from the dead, then the idea of him returning is no problem for me. Because once you have a resurrection, you have, you have the whole ballgame changes. But you must 
You must have it as part of your framework as a Christian. Listen to me, those of you who are people who love the Lord and serve the Lord. You must have it as part of your meditation. You must have it as part of your devotion to the Lord that He will return someday. You cannot look around the world and not want that to happen. There should be something in your spirit that rises up to say like the author of, of the book of Revelation, even so come Lord Jesus. This should be the cry of our heart when we look around the world and we see the injustice everywhere. We should say, even so come Lord Jesus. You will bring it to a conclusion in your time, in your way. We trust in you because you rose from the grave and our great hope is that you will return one day. Do you see that? That is the answer. That is the solution. That, that is how you crack the code of injustice. You've got Jesus on the cross. You've got Jesus and an empty tomb. You've got Jesus who ascends and you have Jesus who will come again. And that, that, on this we hang our hat. On this we make our stand. On this we draw a line in the sand. And then on this we will not compromise this. This is the foundation of everything that we believe. And we, we celebrate on a day like today because we know it's done. I love Good Friday. Good Friday is my favorite day of the year. Say, wow, that's morbid. It's you know why it is? Because very, very few people will argue with the reality that Jesus died on the cross. Very, very few people will do that. Most people, even hardened atheists, will say, Okay, Jesus died on the cross, so what? Oh, so what? That's man, that's everything for me. Because that means my sins are forgiven. Ah. Ah, and, he, and, he, and hey, he rises from the dead to show his deity to the world. Oh my goodness. Hey, I can, walk, I can face anything. You can face anything. You, you walk and you live with your sins forgiven, my friends. With your sins. Do you know what a precious gift that is? We're so inoculated to that today. We don't walk in celebration today because we're so busy looking for prosperity and health that we don't realize I have it already. My soul has prospered. My spirit is healthy because my sins are forgiven once and for all. No more need of, you know, animals being slaughtered in a temple. No more need of any of it because Jesus paid it once and for all on the cross. And no one can take it away and no one can change it and no one can make it, make it stop. It lives on the cross of Christ. I cling to that, that old rugged cross. So for me, it's, for me, it's like the best day of the year. Good Friday. Say, well, there's something wrong with you. So 